0: Welcome to Wine Talk for today, Wednesday, September 8th, 2010. It's 7 p.m. Eastern, and I'm your host, Stu the Wine Guru, coming to you live from beautiful Coral Springs, Florida, as I always do. As you know, I'll take your calls anytime during the show at 1-646-381-4860, or email me your questions at info at StuTheWineGuru.com. You can also go into my chat room here on the show page and chat with other wine enthusiasts, Or on Twitter, you can tweet me any questions you like at StuTheWineGuru and add hashtag or pound sign stwg to the end of your question, and I'll read them live on the show. I want to say thanks to all the listeners out there for getting the word out about my show. Welcome to all of you listening worldwide. Call that the power of the people meets the power of the Internet. If you want to find out more about me, just Google StuTheWineGuru. You can find out the websites, videos, articles, and shows I'm currently a part of. Speaking of articles and reviews, I'm writing wine articles and reviews for Yahoo and the Examiner, so look for those as well. And I've made a Wine 101 video series that can be viewed on both YouTube or my website, so check those out. You're listening to Student Wine Guru on blogtalkradio.com. Uh, I think you already knew that already, Roy. Yeah. Cheers. I have to tell you, I have a great guest tonight for you. He's a luminary of the wine industry. Let me give you an example. Legendary, masterful, award-winning, unsurpassed quality, unique vintners, a work of art in a bottle, these are just some of the words that describe the wine that my guest creates. His name, Michael Salaci, And the vineyard is Opus 1. He will be with us shortly. Of course, the number to call in, 1-646-381-4860. Or, if you're shy and prefer the computer, email me your questions for both Michael and I to info at stewthewineguru.com. As I mentioned, on Twitter, you can tweet your questions to stewthewineguru and add hashtag or pound sign STWG at the end of your question. And I will read them live on the show. I have the chat room open here, so you can get in there with other listeners and chat about wine. You can also ask questions of Michael or myself, and I'll check in the chat room live periodically during the show to get answers for you. In a Experts in alls There's only one Stew the Wine Guru, and he'll be right back. But well, first up, I have an announcement to make. I want to thank all the listeners who are following me on Twitter. I'm enjoying the immediacy of the medium. I really do, and I, I like the ability to give updates in real time. And my guests are doing the same, so. This way, they can promote the show. They can promote themselves. So thanks to Twitter and social media. Also, for all of you wanting to know what events I will be attending, so you can meet me and come say hi. October first, 2010, I will be at the Molly Duker Tasting at Morton Steakhouse in Miami. Uh, that's going to be phenomenal. You're actually get the chance to blend some wines. So you're going to get the chance to try some of the new Molly Duker vintages. Um, Sparky and Sarah, I believe, are going to be there, Sparky and Sarah Marquis, and uh, it's going to be phenomenal. Uh, I mean, let's just talk about the fact that you got steak and wine. Uh, I don't think there's a better combination personally, if that's just me. So uh, I'm real glad to hear that uh, I'm going to get a chance to get out there and meet some of you. So if you get a chance and you're already going, by all means, enjoy yourselves and, uh, you know, pop by and say hi to me, and uh, we'll talk. Also, I will be at the Miami International Wine Fair on October 14th through 17th. Uh, it's at the Miami Beach Convention Center. I'll have a full TV production crew with me, and I'll be covering the whole event. I'll be interviewing winemakers, exhibitors, keynote speakers, and even attendees. So I want you to come down. I want you to meet me and say hi. Uh, I'm also a media sponsor for the Miami International Wine Fair, and I've worked out a special deal to give all my listeners a special 20% discount on their ticket purchase by entering the code STWG online when you're buying your tickets. So make sure before you actually purchase your tickets, that uh, you put in the code STWG and you get 20% off on your ticket, so it's a nice deal. Uh, in addition to that, I'm looking forward to the fact that in a, instead of just being behind a microphone and you hearing me on the internet, you're now actually going to see me talking about wine and uh, and the winemaker. So it's pretty uh, pretty awesome stuff. So um, I'm very much looking forward to that. So remember. Uh, if you have questions I have answers, call me at one six four six three eight one four eight six zero 381 4860 or email me at info at com. You can get to the chat room and voice your opinion or get on Twitter and tweet your questions at hashtag or pound sign SPWG at the end, and I'll read them live here on the show. Let me make sure that everyone listening knows Michael's website and can go there for more information about his great wine. To learn more about Michael, go to opus one winerycom and find out where you can buy his wine locally, in your, own, in your town, um, you know, anywhere close by. Or, or you can buy it directly from Opus One. That's the beauty of the Internet. So, without further wait, let's bring on my guest for the evening, Mr. Michael Salachi.
2: Michael, are you there? Yes. Hi, Stu. How are you? I am very well, thank you.
0: Can you hear me well?
2: I I, I can hear you perfectly. Very good.
0: Um, I want to start by thanking you for being on my show and discussing your great wine with us. It's most definitely a true honor to have you on tonight, so I want to let
2: you know that. Well, it's a pleasure for me to to be joining you tonight. Excellent, excellent.
0: So I have many, many questions, and I will get right to it. Um, Let's see. Um, you started with Opus One in 2004, but I'm going to ask if you would to take us back a bit and tell my listeners, you know, how you got started in, in the wine business.
2: Um, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, so I started traveling. I went uh, east uh, to Asia and ended up in France. And the only French I knew was Bon Voyage. And I <laughs> looked up I looked up a um, a French woman who I'd met in Tokyo. And she said that if I wanted to learn to speak French, eat well, and earn money, I should pick grapes. So I got a haircut, borrowed a car, and drove out in the countryside near uh, Nantes in Muscadet. Drove into a domain, and there was a fellow loading sacks of sugar into the back of a pickup-type truck or van. And I walked up to him, and I had memorized uh, the line, I want a job picking grapes, and walked up to him and said that. And he smiled and made me understand that if I helped him, Deliver the sugar that uh, he would help me find a job, and so I got a job picking grapes. And I, as I, as I, as I said, I, I knew um, basically uh, bon voyage, and I want a job picking grapes. And so I dreamed in gibberish the first three nights because um, I understood what it was. It's very simple to understand. You, you have a pair of scissors or a knife to cut the grapes. You put them into a, a a, a bucket or a box and you empty them into a container and everybody signals to you and makes signs, you know, that we're going to go have lunch. And so everything was pretty clear uh without understanding the language to me. So I was dreaming in gibberish, not understanding what people were saying, but but understanding what they meant. And it's lucky that it you knew that line, Had to say, I want to pick, I want to pick grapes,
0: you know. It could have been something else you learned and you would have gone to a whole different... uh all <laughs> different industry.
2: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so um, I well, fell in I love yeah. fell in love with two hour lunches and wine and decided to go to school. Uh, went to Davis and then to University of Bordeaux and then back to Davis and started at Beaulieu Vineyard. Was at Beaulieu in four different positions over six, a little over six years. Then I went to King Estate in Oregon as winemaker uh, for about a year and a half to two years. And then to Stag's Wine Cellars for six years to the day as um, first an associate winemaker and then winemaker overseeing vineyards and winemaking. And I started actually in, at Opus in March of 2001. And I worked okay. with – I was uh, a dove, director of viticulture and enology, working with the right. two co-winemakers, co- Tim Mendavi and Patrick Leon.
0: Right. My notes were a little off there. I apologize.
2: Oh, no problem. Um, I was... Uh, I go ahead. Good. I was just going to say, you you said 2004 because that's when I was officially named Soul Winemaker. Right, right. So I have a call for you. Do uh, yeah. you want to take one first? Of course. Let's see what we got here.
0: Okay. Hi, caller. Uh, welcome to the show. What is your name and where are you calling from?
1: Hey, how are you guys doing? I'm Phil. I'm with uh, General Wine Thoughts, actually on Twitter on Vintage Tweets. Um, and uh, I have a question for Michael, and I actually have a comment as well. Sure.
0: One Let's is, go. Go right um, ahead.
1: hey, thanks so much. What is your criteria for using uh, the grapes to make a particular vintage? I know it's not, you don't have a vintage every year. It has to be the creme de la creme. What is your criteria for that, and do you have a varietal that you prefer to go heavy on when you're uh, blending?
2: Uh the criteria is basically we, we really started analyzing the vintage from pruning and seeing the balance. You're starting out at a balance point looking at what had grown the year before, how much fruit had been taken uh the year before, and, and we we get we have to get the, the equilibrium correct uh at that time and we follow it throughout the season. So I have a pretty good feeling for what a vintage will be like um and I keep fine-tuning it uh as we go through the vintage and basically the criteria is the grapes and the wine have to reflect the site first of all and then uh the season and we're shooting for a fairly high percentage uh at least from a planning perspective of grapes going into the wine from our from our estate vineyards we have four estate vineyards uh and and I and we are pretty successful at doing that because we have a team of dedicated uh attention to detail Paying folks, and we were able to get a fairly high percentage into the blend. But um, all the all the blending is done uh, with a blind, with blind tastings, and uh, we end up with a pretty honest uh, blend each year because of that. And you just by the just by the of nature of people. our plantings, we're we're at a we're 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 at about 85% Cabernet Sauvignon. So that's really the backbone of Opus One.
1: I kind of thought that's probably what it would be. So, um if it's 85% Cabernet Sauvignon, you ever get tempted to to call it Opus 1 Cabernet? Uh
2: no, because uh really the whole focus behind Opus, the the vision of the founders is to make a proprietary red wine called Opus 1. And so, um that's really the thing that we really focus on is this uh, proprietary red known as Opus, Opus 1 rather. And and so to 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 call it Cabernet Sauvignon or to um, focus on any other of uh, the other facts or details would be to take the the spotlight away from our core goal which I is understand. to to make this wine.
1: Can I make a one quick comment?
2: Yes. Go ahead. right ahead.
1: My uh my girlfriend had the first vintage uh if I'm not mistaken it was seventy nine of Opus yes. One. Um, and had to throw it out because it um in a move from um Southern California up to north idaho uh it stayed in a in a warehouse and, and ruined it. And wow, what a shame I know that really it is like probably twenty five bucks for it at the time, and uh, yeah. of course, that's one of those wines that you stick away for a probably even more than a rainy day, but yeah that um, it
0: is. But interesting, very interesting. You know? Wow. Well, I really appreciate you calling in. I thank you for your your questions and your comments. Uh, call in any time, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna move on to another question here. Thanks again, caller. Have a great evening. Thank you, so Bye. Uh, so, there. And that's very interesting because you know, there's always that rule of thumb. If it's eighty-five percent. Uh, of a varietal, and then, of course, you can call it that varietal, Cabernet being one, um, but I can see the, the idea of not really wanting to go that route because it's you, know, you're, 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 you have a blend here that's, uh, you know, that you very, very, it seems to be very, um, in small amounts as far as percentages of different varietals of grapes, and uh, it stays predominantly, obviously, Cabernet, but it's it's fantastic, it's unbelievable, I have to say to everybody out there, if you've ever had the chance uh to to try any of the vintages of opus one, and uh, I have to say i you know this is going to, i don't know how this is going to sound, but I don't think there's ever been too many and, and I use this term loosely bad vintages i mean ones that were not i mean there might have been ones that were better than others, but for the most part i mean in comparison to everything else out there, um you know, I think you set the bar basically that's just you know one man's opinion
2: um and so, you know it's really I think the best place to well the very best place to taste opus one is is uh, at dinner with your friends or your family, but um if you ever can people who come to the winery to visit, sitting on the terrace having a glass of wine uh, is is a pretty special occasion uh, and experience, and we have an incredible uh, guest relations staff that uh is very knowledgeable and really it gives a, a great experience. It gives a great visit uh, to to their guests. So um, people should be um, should understand they're welcome to come visit the winery anytime.
0: And I want to get that out there to everybody. Of course, when you go, if you're going out to Napa, it's a must see. It's a must be at. Uh, you have to put that on your list. There's no way of missing it. Um, so anyone planning right now, they've got their date book out and the the you know, writing up the the different wineries and vineyards that they want to, you know, go to. Put this at the top of your list and make sure that you get to it because it's a pretty special experience. And as he said, as Michael said, uh, the staff is definitely going to take care of you very, very well. Um, Here's a a couple questions. I mean, this one, this begs this question. Okay, so Opus One got started with two of the most well-known winemakers in the world. Uh, Baron Philippe de Rothschild, of course, and Robert Mondavi. So they meet in 1970, and Baron Philippe proposes the
2: whole partnership. So what, what do you think was the impetus behind this, out of curiosity? Um, I, well, I, 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 Baron Philippe enjoyed coming to California. He spent time in Santa Barbara. And you're talking about uh, two visionaries um, of the wine world, but just two very open... Uh, curious humans, and uh, I think it, it just seems very natural that that one of the two would initiate a project like this because they were yes. both so innovative and and so to me it seemed uh, logical he like California had a uh, his intuition said that um, there could be great wine well great wines had been made there before 1970 um, and one yeah. of the greatest Wines from Bully Vineyard was that vintage, 1970. But, um, you know, so th- I think he, he knew that this would be uh, something uh, special and, and to do a joint venture with Mr. Mandavi would be uh, icing on the cake.
0: I definitely think, uh, you know, visionary is, or visionaries, really are, is the right terminology for both those people because if you think about it this way, each one in his own right um, made an incredible, indelible mark on the wine industry that you know forever has, it's changed. There's been a ripple effect as to how people make wine and uh, and who they you know talk about and refer to. Uh, and so you know, having said that, the idea of it's like you know when you think I don't know if you've heard, in the sports industry, it's like if you think of the two the best in an industry you know in a particular sport. Coming together and being on, on the same team, and you think you thought wow what how, what would that be like and here you have it uh, so I have to say it was uh, an incredible move on on both parts and and here we are how many years later right
2: um, you know so they, the next one, question I was one say, quick comments Stu, about the ripple effect um, it's, a, it's there's a bit of a, of a difference uh, it, folks that work at mutan usually stay at muton for a long time I And mean, this is more typical of the French wine industry, where where people stay put for quite a while, so you have great winemakers who have been in Mouton, and they've stayed there, and then you have uh, the num- the the incredible number of people that went through Mondavi as uh, varietal sponsors or enologists or working in wine in, the, in viticulture or winemaking there that have gone out and done their own thing. Warren Vinisarski was uh, the first assistant winemaker at Robert Mondavi, and then he created Stag's Wine Cellars. So uh, Zelma Long. Phil Fries, incredibly great people have been through the Mandavi Winery. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know, The list is is endless. Um,
0: the uh, so so I was going to get you get to like 1979, right? We talked about that first vintage, and you were talking about Mouton, of course, and Lucien uh, Lucien Cino and uh, and and Tim Mendavi at Robert's Robert's Winery. So they put together that first vintage. What were they looking to make? Did they, did they have a vision already? Did they kind of really know exactly or was it more experimental at that point?
2: I think that they, uh, they probably had some, um, boundaries or, or goals for the, the first wine because the, Mr. Mondavi and Baron Philippe stated that the wine should be a classic red wine made from Bordeaux varieties. And it and it had to be classic. Uh so there were there's some you know, it obviously a wine that ha, that ha, has a restraint and and um is not over the top. And then you had a young uh Tim Mandavi just coming from Davis and a seasoned veteran in Lucien Sieno uh meeting together and with a bunch of samples of wine uh from the seventy nine vintage and trying to reach uh a point of understanding between the two of them, and 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 they did it, and and I think it's it's and like you know we were talking with I believe it was Phil about the '79 vintage, that's an, still today an incredible wine, and and, yeah. and so they, they did really well. Yeah, and they, and, they, they, and, they they right right from the get go began to fulfill the the vision that I would understand Baron Philippe and Mr. Mondavi to have had.
0: And if you look at it this way, it's amazing. You know, it's unfortunate, and I, I say this all the time on my on my show. It's unfortunate the reputation that New World California wines get as far as um, aging. And, and that there isn't, I think not now as much as there was years ago, uh, there wasn't as much confidence in being able to do that with, let's say, a New World wine Versus, of course, the old world French wine. So the thought was, okay, you know, you can put away a French bottle and, you know, and open it up and, you know, at any given time, and it's going to be better and better and better and have different characteristics and so on and so forth. Whereas the counterpart in California, that wasn't so much the case or people didn't think that way. And I think the 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 idea of, and the testament to how well it was made, is that you can take a 79 and open it up and it's incredible, phenomenal wine to be drinking at this point in time. And if you're lucky enough to have a first vintage, you know, um, Opus One. So, and again, hacks off, of course, and that's a testament to their uh, winemaking creativity between the two of them. Yeah. So, we, we get to, let's say, 1988, unfortunately, the passing of Baron Philippe and his daughter, the Baroness, Philippine, takes over. Uh, same year, 19, let's see, the 1985 vintage, is the first ultra premium I guess that that, that uh, terminology was coined California wine to be sold all over Europe. I mean that's an incredible con- accomplishment. So what changes did the baroness bring to the company, if any?
2: Well, um, I believe that the first uh, wine outside of Bordeaux to have been made outside of Bordeaux and presented in Bordeaux uh, was Opus 1 at Chateau Moutin-Rothschild. And I so she, she made a bold statement that, uh, uh, of confidence in this wine by showing it in her own backyard. And right. I think that both she and her father um, had a strong sense of, uh, she was an actress before taking over the reins of Baron Philippe de Rothschild, um they both have a a, a strong uh, artistic sense and mm-hmm. we're also I think very clever and good at hiring people uh, a support support group that would um, help them uh, with the reality of of uh, business even though you know having said that Baron Baron Philippine makes some very uh, astute business decisions so I I think that she to me took it up a notch because she she may have had an even greater focus on on the winery. She was part of the group uh, choosing the architect and moving forward from that point so it, her father had the vision um, found someone to to share this vision and then she really uh, implemented the vision by overseeing the building of the winery and um transitioning uh from Robert Mundavi to uh, the Sands Brothers as owners in two thousand and four right. so um and, and then insisting at that time that that the independence of Opus One be uh respected and also um, supporting and acknowledging her father's initial uh Notion, which was to have a joint venture, she 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 had first read a refusal with her family for Opus in two thousand and four when Robert and Davi Winery was sold, and she chose to respect her father's uh, initial thought, which was to have a joint venture.
0: Right, I think it was so um
2: rule. Yes. So, so she brought both. I think though. to Opus.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, and I, I think you know again, there's. A lot of ways that could have gone. I guess that's really what I was kind of getting at initially. And you explained it very eloquently in that, you know, let's say being, coming from an acting background, it could have been, it could have gone in a more, let's just say a more frivolous way, uh, as opposed to a more thought out and creative way and, and, uh, following and, uh, accepting and recognizing and acknowledging her father's vision. Um, so it could have gone in a lot of different ways, and I think, uh, I think the vineyard and the partnership and everything else, it's very lucky to have had someone like her come along and continue that vision and be able to be, uh, you know, to continue to understand how it should play out. So, um, that's another great thing that I, I think happened. And just from, you know, from my perspective of looking at it, and I think everyone else's perspective of looking at it, how it continued to go and, and grow at, uh, you know, and become such a you know a great um, a great name. Um, 2001, it's reached its 20th vintage. Tasting's all over the world, Tokyo and all that. So, what do you think Opus One had learned in that time frame? It's 20 years about the process um, of making of making wine, that particular wine. I mean, because again, your focus is highly intensive. You know, and there's an intensity there of making one particular type of wine. So, what do you think was learned? the next 20 years process?
2: Well there were uh, several cycles. Um, There was uh, um, the planting of different new rootstock in in the Opus One vineyards before Phylloxera became an issue. Uh, So even before that they were were using um, rootstock that were uh, different than what was commonly used in in Napa Valley. Um, they had progressively gone through, steadily gone through, uh, the different uh, varieties of, of, uh, that are present in Bordeaux. They started with Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, and Merlot, and then in 94 added um, Malbec in 1997, Petit Verdot. So there was a very um, um, well-thought progression. And then uh, spacing, row orientation, there was a continuous evolution in um, how vines were planted and grown. And actually, since 2001, we've we've continued with that. So I, I think it was um, uh, more of a, kind of a big picture, a vision, and then a continuous fine-tuning of practices and principles of, of viticulture and winemaking.
0: Yeah, I, excellent, excellent. Um, so okay, so now we're back to 2004, um, and I guess at that point, of course, you take over. Um, what I guess I should really ask now, put it to you, what have you learned on this incredible, you know, um, about making this incredible wine since then, about the process that's different from your previous experiences? And I mean previous experiences, what you had done, you know, prior at the other vineyards that you had worked at.
2: Well, I learned uh, an incredible amount um in the short period of time when i was at bulieu and andrei Chelychev was still there his sensitivity to uh, reading vineyards reading vines tasting grapes and understanding where they were going where the where they where they would take you in, in the wine mm-hmm. um, and his sensitivity to, to people uh warren Viniarsky, i learned an incredible amount from warren in viticulture and winemaking and so I went there, and, and focusing on um, vineyard designated wines, Fay and SLB, um, Arcadia. And so when I went to Opus, um, I took that sensitivity that I learned from Andre in regard to people, and I took that sensitivity that I learned from Warren about making vineyard de- designated wines, having a, a defined area, and, and um, allowing that the grapes and the wine from that area, to to truly express where it came from. But now I was in a situation where I had four great vineyards that made up the estate. And each one I learned to treat uh, as if it were going to be going into a vineyard-designated wine. But as the fruit left the field, it was going into a proprietary blend. So it was I had the opportunity to take all these things I had learned at different places, and and learned by by listening to uh, Patrick and Tim, and tasting the wines, and getting a feel for Opus One. Uh, everything I had learned to 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 put into practice. Opus is a is a beautiful place to make wine because it is so simple, and it's very simple and pure because you had uh, French winemakers and viticulturists and California winemakers and viticulturists. Coming together to reach consensus on the principles of viticulture and, and and winemaking, and when you have a consensus like that, you end up with something that's very simple and very respectful of the fruit and the wine. So it's um, an incredible synergy. It sounds like yes, yes. And um, before you know, I came to Opus. There were two co always two co-winemakers and there was a director of production uh, jean Viv Jansen's was the director of production at Opus from 91 through 1997 now she's the, doing great things at Mandavi but there were always it was always known that there were two co-winemakers at Opus and I was the um, the first single winemaker at Opus and I um I kind of laugh at that because there's never been so many people involved and given credit for what we do at Opus. It's truly a, a team effort. Um, I can't visit all 300,000 vines we have on the property, but I can right. teach the vineyard workers what we're looking for and, and give them all the tools, uh, the knowledge, um, the responsibility, the authority uh, to do what's right with those vines. But I can't be yeah. present... Everywhere. And so it, yeah, I rely on an incredible team of people from um, the cellar to the vineyard, um, Mike Farmer, who's the assistant winemaker, uh, Natalie Jure, who's a viticulturist, Juan Martinez, who's a vineyard manager, and all these people uh, that we uh, that we work together as a group to, to make one wine. So I learned about... I have to tell people. I'm sorry. Please go ahead.
0: No, no. I wanted to tell. I wanted to tell everybody that um, you know, while we're listening and and you and I are talking, that they should get go to your uh, website and look because it's incredible. Uh, There's just some incredible pictures of the uh, vineyard and uh, the grapes and and all that. And it's kind of nice. It's it's like the way you're talking about it and elaborating about it. It's almost a narrative. Over, you know, what they're looking at. So, I, I was gonna just say, hey, go, go to www.opuswinery.com and while Michael and I are discussing this, uh, you'll get, you'll really get a feel for everything he's talking about and, uh, and, and also if you want, of course, you know, if there's some wine there that you want to, uh, purchase, a, do that as well. But I'm sorry, that's why I wanted to, it was just, it was becoming more of a narrative in my head here. I was
2: thinking, wow, yes. this would be great for people to be doing that, you know? And you know it's going to be even greater in, a, in just a few weeks, I think in October, uh, to actually visit our website because Susan DiMattei uh, has just been, well, she's. I think she's been there now for five five months, but she's our direct marketing manager and she's responsible for redoing the website. And she's coming up with some really incredible ideas and uh, for our new website. So I hope that people will go back to the website in in October and see what she's come up with.
0: Excellent. So everyone listening out there worldwide, I want you uh, you know keep keep tabs on the website and take a look because there's a lot of interesting things that will be be happening. So I have some email questions here. Uh, some some people from around the world that want to ask you some questions. So I'll, I'll uh, jump right into it. First up is from Grapes for You from Caracas, Venezuela, and it says, "Stu, your show is my favorite to listen to on my iPod." Why did Opus One decide to harvest its grapes in California and not in France? You both are very interesting men to listen to. Great
2: show. Well, there you go, Michael.
0: We're interesting men to listen to.
2: Well, again, and you are too. Uh, thank you very much for the question. Um, you know, as I said, Baron Philippe really, uh, really was open-minded and innovative. He, you know, in France, there's a lot of, um, Limitations and regulations, and what you can, varieties you can grow in a particular site, um, when you can harvest, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think that he probably felt an incredible sense of freedom to do something in California, and really narrowed down the Napa Valley. And after having spoken to vintners in in, in California, and met Mr. Mandavi, felt that he would be the person who would be the catalyst to make this all happen. And, and i think he made a great choice as a, as as with mr Madavi as a partner um, i know that when i was working with patrick leone uh when he was uh, co winemaker the thing i always recognized a sense of relief and openness when i saw patrick in california as opposed to seeing him uh in bordeaux because again there's a lot of limitations and it's a whole different world there and i think he had a sense of uh of, of freedom and and relief when he when he was working at opus in california and i also saw the same uh feeling when i saw him at alma viva in chile and i at times felt that if you closed your eyes and filtered out the accents when tim and patrick were together you would think that patrick was the californian and tim was the 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 borderite because tim really uh, learned with Lucien Sieno, and so he had a, right. uh, more of a Bordeaux, uh, leaned more towards Bordeaux, I think. Okay. And I don't know if you've tasted his new wine continuum. It's, it's, it's a great effort on his, in, on his part.
0: No, I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna have to, in fact. Uh, I, I've had, I've heard some good things in regards to it, so. Uh, some more questions here. So, the next one is from Flaco Cinco. From Ixtapa, Mexico, and it says, "Stu, the show is very good. I will listen each week now. My question for Mr. Salachi is, how do you know that the wine
2: is at its peak for bottling? Thank you um, Very good question we have uh, we work with fourteen different coopers, and after the wine has been in barrel uh, for over a year uh, in this in the springtime before it will be bottled so we put it to barrel, let's say the 2008 went into barrel beginning October, November of 2008, and then in the um, springtime of 2009, we begin to taste um, Opus 1 that's been aged in 14 different Coopers, so let's say that we have Sagamaroa as a Cooper. They can bring four or five people to the winery, and we will taste uh, this last spring, for example, using that as an example, we would taste the 2008 blind tasting in 14, that had been aged in 14 different barrels, barrel types. And right. that does two things. It allows us to really strengthen our relationship with the, the cooper so they can see, they can reflect on what, how they interact, their barrels interacted with our wine in the past at the present and reflect on what, what we're going to do going into the future. We repeat this 14 different times with each cooper and that gives us an opportunity to one, strengthen the relationship with the Cooper, but secondly, to see how the wine is evolving during the final stages of its time in barrel. And basically, we're looking at whether it's tasting fruit to make a harvest decision, blending, or at this point, we're basically focusing on mouthfeel. But we're also seeing how the fruit and the oak play off of each other. And when we feel that we're getting to a, a, a balance point between fruit and oak, that's when we make the decision to take the wine out of barrel. And that sets up the whole, uh, uh final stage to get the wine into bottle. Is that, is that well, clear? Yeah, it is a good question.
0: Um, okay, so next question here. Uh, let's see. Next one is from Ulrich Hoffman of Vivid Wines in the UK. And says, now this is a little bit longer question here for you, so bear with me, Michael. 2010 seems to be a very challenging vintage regarding the course of the climatic year and the development of the grape's physiological ripeness. I'm wondering how, you, how difficult you have found it to be to adjust to a special year versus a normal one and what you think the most important step to keep an eye on is.
2: Uh, the most important step is every step. <laughs> this has been uh this has been a uh to me a great year i I loved challenging years um, yep. as Eric, correct is that his name eric um, he mentioned yet. it's you know we've had cool weather we've had rainfall and um, and he mentioned physiological ripeness the yep. vines were everything was just coming along uh very well in my opinion because the uh, average temperature each day was Close, closer than it has been, it normally is to um, to the the, be- the most efficient temperature for photosynthesis. So the plants were doing everything at a good pace, and we're starting to accumulate flavor and aroma compounds in the berries. Now we've had uh, a couple of heat spells in August, which uh, are normal. You know that's what we usually deal with, and that that um, threw us off just a little bit. But um, I see this vintage as turning out to be uh, an excellent one just because of the long, slow maturation uh, process. And it's just right. a matter of, um, like I said, I love these types of vintages. It, it forces you to pay attention to the moment as much as possible and then pull your head up every now and again and look look at where you've been coming from and where you're going and then go back and pay attention to the moment. And keep adjusting uh, because um, you have to constantly be making adjustments. We had cool weather, as I said, with rainfall, so we had to leave more leaves on the vines to up moisture from the ground, from the soil. And then as soon as we st- saw that the moisture levels were dropping in the soil, we removed leaves by hedging or removing laterals to, to bring the number of leaves down so that they don't have too much of demand on water. So it was a constant fine-tuning this year. And I'm really looking forward yeah. to to harvesting in the next uh, we're probably beginning about towards the end of September, early October.
0: Right. Yeah, I have to say, um, I, I've heard a few things in regards to this year. Um, some are saying, you know, fantastic. They're thinking it's going to be a really fantastic uh, vintage 2010. so uh,
2: Next and, and every every vintage so, is, every yes. vintage has its um, its chicken littles.
0: Yeah, oh absolutely. Absolutely, you gotta have to, you have to sort out through and weed out through, uh, what's good, what's bad, and so forth. The next question is also from England, however it's from Warwickshire, uh, and this is from Tim at Seven Springs Vineyard in Warwickshire, England. Uh, his vineyard actually is in South Africa, but he is, uh, a, a resident of Warwickshire, England. So it says first, firstly actually, Best wishes from Warwickshire, England. My question is which, which wine area or areas of the world do you think is the one to watch specifically for quality potential? And that was his question, then he said, I wish you continued success with Opus One.
2: Um, thank you very much, and I wish you the same. And I, and I think uh, South Africa is a, a region to, to keep an eye on. Um, there are some, very fine wines being made in south africa and um, a, and there's a, a i think tremendous potential there um, I think also uh, what people are doing in um, parts of Canada are interesting i mean the the easy places are are pretty obvious but but um there's a there's a new uh, red wine that Dorley mirror makes in Austria. Um, oh, interesting. That, that is, is uh, she's doing really well there. So I think there's the thing is, is that there's so many different areas that are pro- uh, are promising, and uh, I think that um, this is really a, a great opportunity to to be able to um, learn about new areas and see what people are doing in new areas and not judge them against. The traditional wine areas. Let them speak for themselves. Um, and also, I think with the emerging areas, it it, it forces the um, older, more established areas to to stay on top of their game and to keep keep improving.
0: I have a a, a kind of a, a part two to that question, and and I've asked this once before, and I have to say I normally do not ask the same question twice. But since you are you, that's the way to put it, uh, and it's Opus 1, I think you might be able to give or shed uh, a certain light on this that no one I've talked to would be able to. So here's the question. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah, I'm building up to it. Huh? <laughs> but I, I feel like I should have a drum roll or something like that. Uh, in China, you have the largest um, obviously population in the world of people, And I have said that in a very short order, the wine consumption uh, has really – I don't know if you've watched the numbers, but I have, and they've really gone up exponentially. So now, knowing that this is the case, what would it take for someone to go to – I mean, they have different appellations, they have different regions that are very similar to regions – Wine-producing regions in the world, and you know, it, the areas that uh, like we mentioned, South Africa, of course, California, and so on, France, and, and Italy. So having said that, what would it take to have a really phenomenal winemaker, California winemaker, go out to China, check out the different regions, find the ones that are more fertile for growing wine, uh, growing vineyard, growing grapes, excuse me, and 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 then work with. Um, Chinese viticulturists and enologists, and help them to to you know help along to to build that particular market. Because if you think of just the the idea of the consumption there, naturally the numbers are there to support it uh, immensely. And then if you give it a certain period of time, the export would be could be incredible. So I just wanted to pose that to you. Um, and if you think that, that this is a region that has some sort of potential down the road, and how long you think that down the road would actually be?
2: Um, I, I think it has uh, great potential um, because there as you mentioned, there's a lot of different regions. I think first of all, I would do uh, I would fly or travel around um, as many regions as possible, looking for well drained soil with um, access to water via rainfall um, so naturally. Um, occurring water, uh, I'm sorry, uh, water's always naturally occurring but rainfall that would, would fall at the right time during the year or um, being able to store water or wells or whatever but the soils would have to be well drained, um, cl- look at the climatic conditions and then it would be um, a matter of um, getting together uh, a group of people that um, really want to Make a high-end wine, a, a world-class wine, a, a wine that would be recognized internationally as being great, and getting a commitment there, and then having with you uh, a couple of people, a, a strong somebody with a strong viticultural background, someone with a strong um, winemaking background, and a, one or two cellar workers, one or two vineyard workers, and you teach, 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 and. Right. um get people to be to buy into uh the commitment and and not fall into um uh, uh old habits uh that they have there um and and the to me the biggest obstacle would my understanding would uh would, because I do know something about it would be um getting people to not see uh the, people growing grapes not to fall into the trap of making the biggest berries, producing the most amount of fruit possible because they're being paid by by the kilo or by the ton, but by making the fine... Well, by the government, I don't think you could do that. Governmental involvement, where they would say, okay,
0: we, we, in order for you to do this, we we expect you to do X, Y, or Z. Um, unfortunately, that, that could also be... I, I, I know in China there are certain industries where the government is heavily involved um, and not to say there's anything wrong with governmental involvement in certain things, but I'm not quite sure to a certain degree that in that particular or in this particular industry that that would be uh, as helpful. Um, and I and I, I felt you to be uniquely capable, uh, and, and because of the wine that you produce, to answer something like this uh, and maybe shed some light on it. And I know that I have listeners in China, I know I have them all over the world, that, you know, if you're listening. I've put it out there for as long as I've been on this show and people that know me and have talked to me over the course of time know that I think it's going to be a formidable market at some point in time. Um, you know, just if you look at, like I said, the sheer numbers. And there are people that are very, very much interested in wine, good quality wine uh, in China. So I think... You know, like I said, if the, the stars align and the right people go out there and, and do exactly the way you were putting it and, and expressing it, I think that the, there's a, a formidable market to be had. And, uh, you know, and then after that, one on the export end, that, um, you know, people would really take notice of uh, Chinese vintners and, and wine being produced in there.
2: Just there. Uh, that's my story. I think that the the, the Chinese consumers um, will be would be very supportive of a local brand that did well, and and it'd be interesting if this were ever to come to fruition. And I think this is a long-term project. This would be something that there'd be some export just to get international uh, recognition and acclaim, but it would probably be very, very strongly supported by the by the 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 Chinese uh, consumers.
0: Oh, I, I, agree. I, mean, I agree, and that's why I'm, I keep saying it. I keep putting it out there. I'm thinking, I know eventually someone is going to do this. This is going to happen. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised, in the, and I'm not saying in the, in the very near future, because I'm saying it would take time, a learning curve, of course, for them to learn and to get up to speed just to make wine within China, let alone one that would be worthy of, of exporting.
2: So the, the here other, the I go other... to my... The other quick uh, very quickly, the other problem is to make sure that that they understand um, the need to have um, healthy plants, the right rootstock, the right clone uh, for the given area, and not just plant anything. Because that's the mistake all new areas make. They put oh, there will be a boom. They plant just anything, and and then you have to replant it. So anyway.
0: And I think that just went to the learning curve, basically. I think that's, yeah. that's what it comes down to. So so I go to my – here's my traditional question. This is the question that I ask of uh, – the one question I ask all my guests that I started uh, as of well, maybe about four or five shows back. So um, you have the ability to have – to get any wine you want, to drink any wine you want, within reason. I'm saying this as a statement, Michael. <laughs> um, So so tell me a wine that you've either had and you thought after drinking it, it was like the best you ever had. I mean, knocked your socks off. It could be at any time in your career, in your lifetime, okay, or a wine you want to try that you're seeking
2: out. Um, The wine that I tasted that knocked my socks off, and and, and I think that it's important to understand, uh, like I said earlier, that... I would like people to taste, have a glass of Opus with a meal, with their family and friends, because I think that that um, sharing and the the history behind a wine, um, every, all the all of the the social um, surroundings um, have a lot to do with your enjoyment of wine. The yes, my the, the wine that I, I mean, there are plenty of wines that knock my socks off. The one that just really sticks in my mind is the 1941 Engelmann. And that's because I knew the story behind the wine, and uh, had such a great respect for um, what Mr. Daniel was doing, uh, really selecting the best lots, vintage in and vintage out, not putting wines out. Uh, if he didn't feel they were worthy in a given vintage, he would sell all the any all the wine on on the bulk market. The incredible focus, attention to detail, care. Effort that went into making his wines was um, remarkable, and I and I was once able to taste the 41 Inglenook, and I and I thought it was an incredible wine. The wine I would really love to try uh is the 45 Mouton, and I'd like to try it. Not many taste. around. No. Not many no. around, Michael. No.
0: Yeah. But um, I mean, that, 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 that that would be the I'm one I'd
2: like to those. try. It's almost
0: like a ghost, no? <laughs>
2: well, I think so, Philippine has a few I, bottles.
0: <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I was going to say. Now, you want to hear something very interesting. I've asked this question to everybody, you know, in the past couple of shows. And out of maybe three, four shows, five shows, I've always gotten something different, okay? Mm-hmm. This is interesting. And this is, again, a testament to Inglema. And that is that I spoke with John Williams on my last show. And he said, and I, I'm going to have to go back and, and get the, listen to the tape, as they say, which is no, actually no tape anymore. But um, I think he said a 49, inglenook Nook. Okay. I, I want to say he was a 49. It could be wrong. Maybe he was a 41. But, but, he had, but both of you said Ingle So that gives me an idea as to, you know, well, I guess it's, and it's having been around during, maybe during some of the times in, in UC Davis and the 70s and so forth. And, you know, things like that were still, you know, still circulating, if you will, you know, and you still have the opportunity to to try something like that. Whereas like now like I said it's a ghost, you know, these are ghosts. Yeah. So, you know, auctions and things like that nature and, you know, very hard to find. But um, it's interesting. It's very interesting that the first time, that I've heard this, you know, the same winemaker, the same, basically, almost almost the same vintage. We'll find out if it is, but very interesting stuff. Well, I think I've gotten every, I mean, I, if I haven't answered uh, everybody's questions on the emails you sent in, I, I haven't been able to get to all of them. I apologize, but I'll make sure I get some answers for you. Um, I'm going to ask you another question. Michael, are you going to be going to the Miami International Wine Fair at all? Are you going to be, be able to make it next month, or are you... uh are you uh,
2: Yes, yeah, what you're going to be doing. Yeah, I'll, I'll, be, <laughs> I'll be crushing some grapes. <laughs> What's the date? What is the date? It's October.
0: It's actually October. I think it's October 15th through the 17th.
2: Yeah, um, I, um, I would love to be coming down to Miami <laughs> um, for that, but um, I, I'm going to be right, in, right smack in the middle of harvest.
0: Yeah, I would imagine so. So I, I just wanted to ask if that was the case, because this way I get a chance to meet you in person. Um, yes. that's not to say that uh, I won't get a chance to do that because I, as things are happening for me here uh, I'm going to be traveling a lot I'll probably be in Napa at some point in time very soon in the future and I'd love to sit down with you and have a glass of wine and and and, uh, and shoot the breeze a little bit more um, uh, please, I have please, to tell you
2: please let me know when you're no coming it, it'd be a pleasure to 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 meet with you spend some time in the morning in the vineyard tasting and then have a, have lunch somewhere in, in, uh, Yonville.
0: Oh, that's, that's a deal. I will definitely do that. Without a doubt, I will not pass that up. Um, well I want to thank you. I really want to thank you for your time and, uh, and, you know, and enlightening my, my viewers and my, and my listeners to everything about Opus One. Uh, it's a phenomenal wine. It really, really is. And, uh, anyone out there Getting a chance to try something. If you've never tried it before, it's not that you've never heard the name, because you have. But if you haven't tried it before, I urge you, uh, beg, borrow, and steal. Don't do all of that at once. Uh, and, and get a bottle and try it, um, because it's, it's, it's a great experience. And again, I want to thank you. If you, if you want to find out more about uh, Michael and, uh, Opus One, go to www.opusonewinery.com. Check out Michael's wine there and all the information. Michael, I want to thank you for coming on the show and, uh, I'll definitely have you on again and I'll definitely let you know, uh, if I'm going to be out in your town, USA. So Very have a good. great evening and I appreciate it. We'll talk soon again. Thank you so
2: much for the invitation.
0: Thank you again. Take care, have Michael. Bye bye. Good night. So that was Michael Salacci of Opus One. Again, a great show in, in the can here. Uh, I want to especially thank Michael Selassie for coming on the show and telling us about the amazing wine. As always, if you have any questions about the show, you can email them to info at com. You can go to my website as well at com and click on the link for all my wine articles, videos, and listen to archived wine talk shows. Also, don't forget, October 15th through 17th, Miami Beach Convention Center, Miami Wine Fair. Come see me there. I'm going to be on the floor exhibitors, attendees, with a camera, and I'm going to do a Sunday show. As I always say, if it's time to pour the wine, it's time for Student Wine Guru. So drink up, good night, and good wine.